Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 775th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who builds community vitality through art, food, and nature. We're talking with Margaret Bruning about homesteading with an artist. Margaret and her husband, David Long, have operated Poe Run Craft and Provisions in West Virginia since 2018. The Working Homestead is dedicated to community vitality through art, food, and nature. Offerings include homestead experiences and artisan foods. Margaret has a master's degree in art history and 25 years experience in arts administration. She completed her permaculture design course, while living in Phoenix in 2007. Welcome to the show today, Margaret. Are you ready to rock? Yes, I am. Awesome. So I just want to give our listeners a little bit of a heads up before we jump in fully, and that's that we've known each other for, what, 20, 25 years? A long, a long time, Greg. <laughs> a long time. In fact, you took the permaculture design course uh, from Don Titmus and I in Phoenix, I believe, correct? Yeah, I sure did. It was amazing. Yeah. And you actually helped us start a permaculture nonprofit in Phoenix somewhere around 2004, 2005. I still have papers that you and I created about that. Wow, cool. (laughs) Amazing the places you go and the places you don't expect to go. And both of us end up on the East Coast after living in Phoenix for many years, right? You bet. Yeah. I shared a bit about you. Let's fill in some blanks. Oh, wow. So like you mentioned, I lived in Phoenix for uh, 20 years. And I was originally from New York. I am originally from New York. From Phoenix, however, I moved to Los Angeles. And I loved it there. I loved working for Los Angeles County. And I loved how dynamic the place is. And yet, For probably a decade or more, I had sensed something was going to be changing in my life, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. As you mentioned, my background is in art history, and I worked in the arts my whole career. And when I was getting these sensations that something was going to change and I didn't know what it was, I thought I was looking for another job in the arts or in in the public sector, and that nature would always still be my hobby. I had remembered back when I was just getting into college and choosing my major, I decided I was going to study art history and nature would be on the side for a long time. Then at some point, this is me as a fresh young kid, right? Then at some point I thought I would change that up and then nature would be my career and art would be on the side. This sort of big round picture thinking when you're a kid And um, I didn't really know how that was going to take form. And especially when I was in Los Angeles, I didn't know how that would take form. And when I had an opportunity to leave Los Angeles, it was because of somebody I met 
and also because of the timing of life. And, the, and what I mean by the timing of life is I was starting to have these feelings of, oh no, this can't possibly be the last thing I do with my life, standing here in this parking garage, holding a stack full of contracts. And there are so many other things I wanna do, experience, see and be as a person. And I had met this person who became a very good friend of mine while backpacking we met. And he invited me to leave Los Angeles. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, I, and my first reaction was yes, because I would be stupid to say no and turn you down for contracts. And the, but the deal here was that he was leaving Los Angeles in a teardrop trailer. And teardrop trailers are very small, very lightweight, and very portable. And very cute. And they're very cute. And thing is, you can live in a teardrop trailer. We did that for a year. Wow. We lived in primitive places wherever we could, camping. And um, we stayed off of highways and out of towns bigger than 20,000. And here and there, we started woofing. And so that's working on organic farms, volunteering on organic farms, just to see a different aspect of life. And we knew that we were looking for a place to live. Where did we want to move to next? And at this point, I had left my career and I was struggling personally with not having a business card anymore and, and the attachments with who I am now and who I worked so hard to become as a professional. And yet every day I was waking up in the woods and it was incredible. And so during 2016 for the year, we traveled some 30,000 miles. Like fools, we crossed the country five times. We didn't have a great plan. We were going truly intuitively here and there. Wow. And at one point, we were pretty under the weather, had cold wise, we had the flu, and we decided we're going to head south. We got to get where it's sunnier and warmer, get out of Wyoming. <laughs> we saw incredible national grasslands, things that really sparked me and sparked my sensibilities away from the career, away from city life, away from the previous construct of who I worked so hard to become. And I developed this, I noticed, I should say, I noticed this thing that I was doing where I was writing, writing in a notebook about marveling, the act to marvel. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever marveled before, marveled before I was a backpacker and now living in this teardrop trailer in the woods, basically. And it was really exciting. And my senses were just on fire. It was often extremely difficult. I called it outdoor living. It was really hard on my skin <laughs> and, mm. and hair. We ate very simply. We had a, a full kitchen on this teardrop trailer, but we learned how hard it is in some parts of the country to find healthy food options. Yep. And we almost felt punished looking for organic food. It, it was very expensive in some places. And in some places you could not find it. You could not find a grocery store. You were finding other stores that don't have very good food options, honestly, healthy food options. And that's one thing we learned. Another thing we learned is no matter where we traveled, across the country and the people we met, we learned how much Americans love their communities and their families. No matter who we are and what our political differences are and our ideologies, we all care about our families and our communities. And to me, that was so uplifting. <laughs> I know yeah. it sounds kind of crazy, but it was really heartwarming. We had a lot of heartwarming interactions with people and uh, on a funny side note, I was really missing social interactions with people other than just David, my husband. <laughs> Imagine living in a teardrop trailer with your spouse. 
And I started striking up conversations with women where I met them. And it was often in laundromats because now we were washing our clothes at laundromats. And I had the most amazing conversations. And I would often say, tell me, how did you do it? How do you do it? And I'm asking about their relationship. Uh And often fill in the end of the answer, the the end of the question. And they would say, what do you mean? How do I stay married? (laughs) And we'd have really great conversations about their secrets to how, how they make it work for them. Before we move on, I I really want to ask, I have a burning question for you. And that is, you're not young and you're not of retirement age. So you're kind of mid-career and you decide to just give up your career and change careers. How was that for you? It was very exciting and very painful all at the same time. Mm. And yet incredibly liberating. I have been asked what gave me the nerve to think that I could dump my career? And I've often asked myself that because we work so hard to become financially stable, for Mm -hmm. example, so hard to become professionally recognized. And as a woman, I've worked so hard to become respected as a person. And I, I didn't have a good answer for it, except I want to tell you this, that I had have spent many years cultivating my intuition, moving intuitively, and learning to trust my intuition, and not just be a stone hard business person, right? We have to, there's a sensibility inside us that is very wise. And so in that trusting moment, I didn't think about how it was gonna feel to be the woman next to a man trying to get through customs when or in a store when they only look at the man next to me Mm. and that was the first time that's ever happened in my life that kind of you know um, benign sexism and moreover David and I both made a leap we made a leap that leaving my career but also his company (laughs) we both left our work And we both made a conscious decision to simplify life. And indeed, our spending has changed. And sometimes we sure wish we could get back all the money we spent eating out at restaurants, all the money I spent on dry cleaning, haircuts, shoes, stuff like that. Because while it was wonderful and fun in that moment it's completely unnecessary in my lifestyle now and in my life mm. now mm-hmm. <laughs> and boy i wish i could spend that money on something else here all <laughs> right all right so let's jump into west virginia tell me that story okay so remember i said we traveled all over the country five times up and down zigzag here and there At some point, we thought we're supposed to be looking for a place to move to. And the short list of places that we loved and think we might want to move to is looking like a really short list. One of the challenges we noticed is the further east we traveled across the country, the harder it is to find primitive lands, whether it's for primitive camping or just wildlife and forests and dense forests. And we had the most incredible time at an off-grid homestead in Montana. The last day there, it was like a scene out of a movie where a moose walks through the pond. It's stuff like that, right? And then as we're getting further east, it's harder to find. We're not gonna find any moose or elk, but what we did find down the road from a farm that we volunteered at, a a bear ran across the road. Mm. And I freaked out and I said, oh my gosh, we're moving to West Virginia. This place is incredible. The people here are warm and welcoming. They're gritty and resilient. The organic farm we were working at was incredible, a market garden farm in a place called Brewston Mills, north of where we're at now. And it just felt like Things were lining up. And then at some point, we stepped away from that because we weren't done traveling. 
And we broke a rule. We went to St. Louis to go to the St. Louis Arch. We got robbed. Oh. Our Jeep was completely emptied out. We had left a teardrop at our campgrounds. We knew better, but we had stuff in the Jeep and it was completely emptied out. And it was a terrible experience. We had been traveling with only the, the bare necessities. And to mm-hmm. have your bare necessities stolen away from you by thugs, it was pretty, it was very upsetting and had reverberations that lasted a long time. But less than a month later, our storage unit in Oakland, California was broken into. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, universe, you really wanted me to release stuff, not only from my material <laughs> possessions, what were the most important, but the last of the important ones in the storage unit. So we get to Oakland and I said, we are not moving this stuff to another storage unit. We're shipping it somewhere and we're shipping it somewhere right now. And I found a cross-country shipper. We decided to ship our stuff. We found a dot (laughs) called Bridgeport, West Virginia. And we shipped our stuff to a storage unit in Bridgeport. Not ever really having been anywhere except Brewston Mills on a farm in West Virginia. And so that's kind of the accident about how we got here. And by the way, our short list of places we wanted to move to, if West Virginia didn't work out, I don't know where we would have gone. Mm-hmm. Really true. There were so many places we loved. We loved Asheville, but Asheville's a little too finished and made and fabulous. I love the nitty gritty of West Virginia, a place that is always in a state of becoming. We loved Colorado, but Colorado's also got its challenges. We found water collecting, water harvesting in Colorado's problematic, even for a person with gutters on their roof. And we didn't like that. We wanted a place with lower taxes. So things were adding up great to come to West Virginia. Awesome. So you're now in West Virginia, your stuff's at a loading dock in a storage unit somewhere. How did you find a property to homestead? We first rented an Airbnb after staying with our friends on the farm in Bruce and Mills again. We headed south to an Airbnb on the river in Tucker County, beautiful small county in West Virginia. And the people there were amazing and turned out to be wonderful resources and really gave us a lot of ideas for where we might look, where we might want to check out. And we had seen a bit of the state here and there, but we were also incredibly naive about the problematics of the political and the environmental climate here, natural resources extraction, the social problematics and public health challenges, what we saw was such a beautiful place. And I thought every place has its challenges. And we started working with realtors. I started going to yoga classes. And we actually went and looked at 14 different properties. And we learned about a thing called fracking. Wow. (laughs) Uh I had never encountered it before. Didn't need to. West Virginia never never came across my uh, radar before. And as soon as I looked up fracking, uh, and you don't have to become an expert to learn about the problems with fracking, because all you pull up on the internet when you do a Google search on fracking are lawsuits. And I thought, okay, that's going to rule out certain counties and certain parts of the state. We happened upon Randolph County because this is where the yoga class is, this yoga studio where I was taking classes. And it's beautiful here. And moreover, um, there's no natural resource extraction here. Oh, very good. We we do have some quarries where we're digging up gravel. So we do have quarries where we're digging up gravel, Um, but we don't have natural gas. We don't have coal mining, nothing like that. And we own our mineral rights. That was important to us. Long story short is we saw 14 properties, realized we cannot afford 
what we're looking for. We actually wanted yeah, a few acres to build a tiny house on, something with a nice view or uh, a river. And we just couldn't afford it. Um, and then one day I met this wonderful couple at yoga, Barbara and Clay Carter, and they're older now, but they invited us out to see their homestead not far from town. She said, well, here you're looking for property. We have an old homestead. Would you like to see it? Wow. And I casually, I, <laughs> I casually thought, sure, I'd love to see a homestead. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> and uh, we drive out with them. And the first thing we do is Clay stops and he fills up everybody's water bottles out of a spigot at the bottom of the driveway. And I'm a backpacker. I don't drink, I don't drink um, unproven water, but if the owner of the property drinks it, I drink it. I wasn't about to say no. Uh -huh. So we have the hill to, and this mountainside unfolds. And before us is this enormous three-story house. And it's beautiful. We fell in love. Turns out they were interested in selling it to us. And they've been incredible mentors since. And Barbara and Clay, without them, we really wouldn't know how the water infrastructure works here. We wouldn't know as much about how the house was built. We wouldn't know so much about the nuances of the land and what grows here naturally and foraging and all of that. It's been an incredible relationship with Barbara and Clay. And we didn't just buy a property. We, I feel like we bought into a place that they began and that we are stewards of what they began. How cool is that? How does that make you feel? It's amazing. It's so unexpected and overwhelming. <laughs> I, I can get that because the urban farm where I lived in Phoenix for 32 years needed a steward to yeah. steward the old growth food forest that I'd put in place there. And the people that ended up purchasing it are just amazing. So I can understand that. And we talk pretty much weekly about, hey, what's this about? And what's that about? Yeah, I get it. I, Barbara and Clay have been just resources that we really need. And not just them, but their whole community of friends have been very welcoming. And we really feel like we found America's best kept secret, which is Elkins, West Virginia. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And from there, actually, let's talk about the uh, Carter House uh, at Poe Run. Poe Run is the name of your, your homestead. What is the Carter House? Tell me a little bit about that. Carter House is a three-story structure built by Back to the Landers. And I don't know if you've heard of the Back to the Land movement, but back in the 70s or so, young Americans were wanting to get out of the city and find a, a quieter, simpler pace of life, a place to raise their own food and their kids. So Barbara and Clay built this house starting in 1978 or 79 with their two sons and friends and members of the community. Uh, it was really, truly a big effort for a lot of people for a long time. It is a, an ambitious three-story structure. It's architecturally unique in both the details and the craftsmanship. It is saw-hewn red oak, and the second floor has an overlook over looking down onto the kitchen. There are details like hand carved switch plates and stained glass windows. The house itself also has two covered decks and large um, picture windows for passive solar heating. So the wow. whole house is oriented facing south on this hillside. Nice. So, yeah, it's very smartly oriented. And I should mention just a couple last things about the inside of the home, but I want to tell you about all the amazing aspects of what it's like to live here too. This house actually has an open floor plan and each level, each of the three stories of the house 
is anchored by a central four foot square chimney. So the chimney runs the entire vertical height of the house up through the center of the house. We could put a wood stove on each floor. We don't, we haven't done it. The Carters never did it. There's actually room downstairs. There's a fireplace downstairs that they never used. The home is heated with a wood stove. And wow. actually it features two wood stoves. The one is a vintage Fisher stove. And the other is a vintage Tirolia wood burning stove. It's an Italian cook stove for preparing meals. Nice. Uh, yeah, we don't use the Tirolia. It is functioning, but we don't, we haven't found that we need it. Anyway, so we actually Airbnb the third floor guest room, which I like to say is the most finished room in the house <laughs> because it is. The house uh -huh. is very a work in progress. But super cool things about this house is that we're mostly off grid. There's only one, one electrical line that comes all the way up the mountain and it connects to this house. Everything else on the property, all of our other buildings are on solar and also water catchment. And the house itself is, has a gray water system. We have very rudimentary plumbing. Our bathroom is a flushless composting privy, and we also have water catchment on this house. And I should mention, the water that comes up to the house is actually pumped up from a spring box below our big maple tree right by the garden. When wow. we first here, however, the house had been largely vacant for about a, a, a decade or so. Whoa. And yeah, so there was a lot of work that we needed to do. And as a matter of fact, for about a year, we hauled water up from the spigot down below. <laughs> so our runoff water, we, we brought that up. And we heated water on the stove for four years. So it took us, it's taken us a few years to get up to speed with the house. <laughs> wow. Do I remember you saying that you're building another house on the property? We are. We actually have another building in the works. And this building is going to be fully off grid. So all the water catchment, all the solar, it'll have a modern composting toilet. It will have a modern shower. The coveted Pogren shower will be there and radiant floor heating. Wow. And that building is actually a multi-purpose building. It will include a studio space. A, a separate private Airbnb unit. And then downstairs, it will have a large space for storage for hay and then a, a winter barn for our sheep. Nice. And that building's also built onto the hillside. Wow. I, I would like to describe a little bit of what it's like to actually physically be on this property for listeners, because it's something that surprised both me and David in our experience here. There's something that we all take for granted, which is walking on flat ground. <laughs> <laughs> I We resemble that remark because we're on four hilly acres here. So. Yes. so, you know, on a mountainous terrain, and I call this is lush rolling landscape. This is a classic West Virginia rolling mountainside. And so what that means is you're mostly either walking up hill or walking downhill. And there's this kind of equilibrium thing your body is always doing. And you're wanting to, your body's always wanting to adjust. Imagine if you're standing on a, the deck of a boat with that little bit of movement. There's no movement here, but your body always wanting to situate itself and account for this kind of standing slightly with one foot more uphill and one foot more downhill and especially the walking uphill the walking downhill i'm really thoughtful about what i'm taking down with me to our jeep because our parking area is about 300 feet downhill from the house wow i'm really thoughtful about what i want to bring onto this property because from our mailbox up to the parking area is about 600 feet uphill. So the gravel driveway goes uphill up and then we park and then we have to decide how we're getting the thing the rest of the way. 
We can drive up the rest of the way and we do, we have a side-by-side -side for that. And if necessary, like when we had the big replacement windows delivered and, and installed, they drove up with their big truck. But generally, nobody drives up this far. So you're always thinking about what am I carrying? What am I wearing? What am I wearing on my feet? <laughs> I tell people to show up here in sturdy shoes. You wouldn't believe what some people think are sturdy shoes. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that's okay. Everybody can move at their own pace. And that's the beauty of this is that there's no hurry unless, of course, it's raining <laughs> or dark. And on a daily basis, we the first thing I do, especially in the spring, is I am checking the forecast. I'm looking out the window, always consulting the sky. So we're, I'm watching to see what the sky is doing versus what the forecast is saying. Because we are, think of this kind of tucked away in the rolling hills. Our weather patterns are different here than they are five or eight miles away in town. So we get five more inches of snow. It's five degrees cooler here up on the mountainside. And I should say our elevation is about, at the house, it's about 2,600 feet. And so in town, you're about, I think, forget, like about 2,000 feet maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, every day is like a negotiation with Mother Nature about her terrain, her weather pattern, what's happening right now, and are the honeybees out yet? It's been too cold. They're not out. Or, wow, they're really loving the apple blossoms, and they're all over the place, swarming all around. So it's the kind of place and life where you're very much at the mercy of mother nature i like to say we will never tame this place we are more incidental to her way of life <laughs> right wow and you got to make sure that when before you walk down to the car you got everything you need otherwise you're <laughs> walking back up to the house again yeah you decide how bad you really wanted that thing after all <laughs> <laughs> wow so you've been there now, what, five years? Seven. Seven years, yeah. wow. Yeah, what, is that it? So around, we moved here around 2017. Okay. And you started Poe Run Craft and Provisions. Tell me about that. I come from a, a nonprofit background and public sector work. My whole career, I was a public servant working for the community good in arts administration and learning what a, a vibrant, vital community is and what the components of that are. And so it's kind of part and parcel for who I am to think that way. And this place is so beautiful and so bountiful. I feel a, a responsibility and a human impulse to share it with others. So we formed this nonprofit and it's actually a multidisciplinary nonprofit because how can nothing is ever singular here on Po Run? <laughs> so, or in life, for that matter. Yeah, it's all in, intertwined. Here we are amidst um, art, food, nature, with community at the core. To me, that's the best kind of nonprofit are the things that bring us together. We all experience food and nature and each other. And art, I think, is the perfect communications tool. It's the perfect sharing tool. And so is food. We all in some form or fashion have um, needs with food. We eat, we share, we have food traditions. And so these are things that are very accessible in, in various ways, especially here on this property. I like to share with people the free food that grows here and the foraging for example especially in the springtime and so we like to host community events and homestead experiences like cider fest we bring out our cider press and we all pick apples and we spend the day rinsing apples and pressing cider and wow. it's a really great family-friendly activity and the thing is, during COVID, 
when, when none of us could share those experiences together, it made me realize how important those experiences are because I was reflecting on when we did have people here and bring their children and friends and the sharing that occurs and the communication that occurs when we're all doing a shared task and not just communication, but it's a sharing of who we are and who I am as a person. And then we open up. The more we share together, the more we learn about each other. And I think learning about people who are unfamiliar to us and new to us is a really important part of who we become as people and frankly, as a society. Big time. Okay, so talking about food and your desire to grow most of your own food, if you could, that's one of the reasons we moved to our homestead in outside of Asheville is to see how much of our own food we could grow. What are you actually producing at Poe Run? We actually, we produce about 75% of our food. Wow. That's huge. It is. And it brings, there are some challenges that come with that. I should admit, I do admit that freely. <laughs> it is a lot of work. And aside from that, though, we don't raise our own flour stuff like that. But the things that we do grow and we do raise, we're doing an awful lot of um, preserving too, whether it's canning, dehydrating, um, fermenting. So we're trying to create a range of foods. And we do freeze some foods as well. We're really fortunate to have found a property that has mature apple orchards as well as two blueberry patches with mature blueberry bushes. And we have an enormous quantity of wild leeks that grow here, otherwise known as ramps. Yeah, those are a regional, coveted regional favorite. Interesting, uh, interesting. They grow wild here on our yeah. property too. They're just everywhere. And it was like, whoa, what's that? I dug one up and... yeah. Yeah. So there's this cool thing that happens. Let me, I'll tell you that in a, in a second, but some of the range of other things we grow is we do raise our own meat chickens. We have a little chicken tractor for them. We also raise sheep for meat and wool. We also have uh, ducks for eggs and we have a 2000 square foot terraced garden in which I grow a, a crop of usually about a 1,500 to 2,000 heads of gourmet garlic varieties and wow. all kinds of other vegetables and fruits and berries. And we recently, a couple of years ago, we installed a high tunnel, which is an unheated greenhouse. And we installed that where I'm really enjoying learning how to grow in a high tunnel. We were fortunate to get a USDA grant to help fund the a large portion of the cost for this structure. Yep. There, there are programs available for that for everybody. Yes. Very accessible. And you don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to be a, a farmer's market farmer. You know what I mean? To, mm -hmm. to get high tunnels. The grant was established to help Americans with food sovereignty to grow our own food which is so cool. And so I'm really enjoying, believe me, it was really hard to build that thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm enjoying what's coming of it. <laughs> That's for sure. So anyway, yeah, we have a range of wild forage, foraging that's going on. And I like to go through the food gap time. Have you heard that term, the food gap? I haven't. Yeah. So one of my favorite guys on YouTube Hugh Richards talks about the food gap. He's a permaculturalist, actually. Anyway, the food gap is the time when you don't quite have your shoulder season foods growing yet, and it's midwinter, you're running short on what you stored or dehydrated or canned or froze, and you're hard up, right? So this is your food gap. I like to tell people there's this cool thing that happens with garlic products. Because if you are eating seasonally, that means when you don't have garlic because it's out of season, you don't have garlic, you guys, okay? 
But what mm -hmm. you do have is check out this thing that happens. You have ramps in April. They're like a cousin to the garlic. They're somewhere between the onion and a garlic in terms of flavor when you cook it. And then, so that's April. In May, I'm using up some of my garlic powder, the last of my garlic powder that I dehydrated last fall. In June, I'm picking scapes off of my garlic plants. And the scape is that stalk that comes up and grows the flower from each garlic plant. We have to break that scape off so that it sends the energy back into the roots to grow your garlic bulb. And now you're left with this big, long, curly cue <laughs> that tastes like a mild version of garlic. So in June, you're using those. And in July, you can pull out some garlics out of the ground, pull your garlic stalk straight out and use it as fresh, uncured garlic, which is another milder form of garlic, but you can also slice it up and use it like you would a leek. It looks just like a leek. And then by July, you're digging up your garlics and you're hanging them to cure and they're ready to use. So there's this cool cycle that happens and you don't ever think, oh, I really wish I had garlic during those months that you don't have garlic because you have these other foods. And some of them are, are growing right there wild down the hillside. Wow, how cool is that? And that's just planning with nature. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the other one I didn't mention is garlic chives because they grow everywhere. So you could use that too, which is, and they're plentiful. But yeah, the point is that foraging is something that I think as a culture, we should talk more about. We should know more about, know how to forage responsibly and safely because that is free food. And with our grocery bills going up, we need to be smarter and more resilient about where we're getting our food from. Yeah, that is for sure. So are you producing any of this in abundance that you're actually selling it? I generally, yes. As a matter of fact, we were talking about products. I generally dehydrate ramps and sell ramp powder and scape powder. I also grow a plethora of herbs and I actually blend herbs with dehydrated leafy greens, like the leaves off of cabbage plants, the leaves off of broccoli plants. We don't typically eat those and I dehydrate those and I mix them up with some of my homestead herbs to make a homestead seasoning powder. Yeah. Wow. So some products by the way some of the other products that we make are related to we sell duck eggs of course and we do sell lamb and chicken but i should mention that everything we do is painstakingly made on a mountainside with water har rainwater harvesting and pretty low tech it's small batch stuff so when we run out we're out and we were even out for ourselves and it's okay, we, you, time to move on for something else. So we don't always have the same products available. I love making jam and jelly. It's something my mom always did by the court for a large family. I make smaller jars now, <laughs> but um, I'm pretty happy with a product I came up with in, that uses both fruit and garlic together. And these are wow. my garlic spreads. Yeah, I call them garlic spreads. And the garlic spreads, there are three different flavors. And I take our apples and I cook them down into a nice, rich, sweet applesauce, sugar-free applesauce. And I blend it with roasted garlic to make a wild apple garlic glaze, for example. And the other one that I really love is called Blueberry roasted garlic compote. And the blueberry roasted garlic compote is just what it sounds like. It's roasted garlic blended with blueberries from the mountainside and also some balsamic vinegar. So these are sweet, savory spreads that you can use with meat or on cheese and crackers, or you can have it with vegetables if you want. And the blueberry one is low sugar. I'm really proud of that one. 
anytime I make something that involves less sugar, the better. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the case. I should mention there is one other product I make that we haven't really talked about yet, which is what am I doing with the wool from our sheep? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> At every turn, I'm constantly thinking of new products I could be making because there are so many opportunities here. And I've learned how to weave and I came up with these amazing decorative pillows. So I hand spin the wool that I shear off my sheep myself and I hand spin it and I weave it and I sew it into these beautiful decorative pillows. And I tell people, I sell these pillows because I love sharing these traditions with people, but also it helps me pay for our winter hay to feed the sheep. <laughs> oh, yes. Wow. That's amazing. I love that you're up to that. Now, you did an internship around the sheep, did you not? I did. And the story of how the, the apprenticeship came about is that when my mom passed away in 2018, before she passed away, she said, you're going to take the sheep, right? And I said, oh, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can do that. But I said, mom, we'll do right by your sheep. And when she passed, I was heartbroken and all the things that go when your beloved mother leaves. Mm -hmm. And it turns out <laughs> that saying you keep learning things about your spouse or your partner. It turns out my husband, David, had sheep when he was in, in high school for a couple of years and was a 4-H'er. And so it wasn't totally out of the question for him. And I grew up with dairy goats and horses and chickens. And I was a farm kid on Long Island and upstate New York. And so I thought, okay, we'll pull this off. We bring the sheep here. And yet I was deathly afraid of killing them because you know what? It occurred to me, I'd never been in charge. My mom was always in charge with taking care of the sheep and the goats. And if something was wrong with my horse, she would know what to do. So I applied for this West Virginia Humanities Folk Life Apprenticeship, partly because I was racked with anxiety and didn't want to kill my sheep. You know, there's a saying that sheep are always looking for an excuse to die. <laughs> and that's oh, because wow. vulnerable. And they are vulnerable, especially to parasitic pressure on land when you have wildlife and you have lots of wildlife here, deer in particular. So I get this apprenticeship and it's a folk life apprenticeship. And I structured it. I said, half my apprenticeship is to take, learn how to take better care of my sheep. My animal husbandry skills need to be sharpened. And the other half is to come up with a product I can use to help fund this, doing something traditional. And being a hand spinner, I wanted to expand my skills and become a weaver. And so I apprenticed with my farmer friend, actually, Kathy Evans from Brewston Mills who we met years ago when we first volunteered on their farm. And I learned a lot through the whole process. And I've taken my knocks with the sheep because it's not easy raising animals, especially sheep on a mountainside. And it's been incredible. And we make these beautiful hand-woven pillows. I'm using a, a spinning wheel I inherited from my mom. Oh, wow. And How cool is that? Yeah, and I'm using a loom I inherited from my mom, and we have six of her sheep here. Wow. How long does the sheep live? Sheep, I think it really depends on your goals with the animals. Some people keep them as long as they're most in their prime, five or six or eight years. I don't know. They can live a lot longer than that. My mom used to say i'm gonna keep that sheep until she just dies she's this is her forever place <laughs> mm. wow and so out of that apprenticeship you wrote two books yes i thought i knew i was going to write something but i decided you know what my voice matters because i'm the only person on this mountainside trying to do this with my husband and he's got his perspective and i have my perspective and so I decided I'm going to write these two books. And I also made a 26 minute film that's on YouTube because 
I wanted to have these things in hand that we could share with others. And not everybody's on the internet. So I wanted to have these hard copy things that we could share with others and that would live in perpetuity long after I stopped talking about this and long after I'm gone, but that these things will still be here to be a, a record of this learning experience and this traditional art form that's happening here in West Virginia. So the names of the books are? So the first book is a zine. It's called Sheep to Shawl, The Art of Raising Sheep and Creating Fiber Arts. This is from my journal, so it's conversational style. And the other one is called Positive Ruminations of a West Virginia Folklife Apprentice. Wow. And those are available. People can buy them. These are both available on our website. Cool. What's your website? Our website is porun.org. That's P as in pumpkin, O, E as in eggplant, run.org. You run Po Run Craft and Provisions as a nonprofit. You have some other programs. Can you tell us about them? Our legacy garden is a garden dedicated to people who have their hands in the soil and people who love to grow plants. We've traded some 20 different plants with people or, and more. And so their plants and seeds are now growing on our mountainside. And I hope that this legacy garden is here long after I leave. And it is a true testament to the legacy of those who are committed to the ephemeral and the ephemeral being plants and things that come and go with the seasons. Mm -hmm. Other programs are, we just partnered with the U Mountain Center on their Mountain Medicine Trail. And the Mountain Medicine Trail is a conceptual idea around the state's natural resources that we don't typically think about. So medicine plants like black cohosh and ginseng and golden seal, we have those plants now growing here in our gardens and in our woodlands, thanks to U Mountain Center. And we're soon we're going to be, we'll have their interpretive materials here too. And wow. one last, another program we started is called Elkins Grows. And Elkins Grows is a training program for young adults who want to learn both how to grow food, but also the entrepreneurial side of turning it into something that you take to market. Way cool. So you're really <laughs> pursuing the community aspect of all of this. Yeah, I don't wanna be just a person on a mountainside. This place is too beautiful and too abundant to be selfish with. And I love sharing this place with other people, whether it's through a tour, or inviting people up to come and do pick your own lettuce <laughs> or to mentor somebody through a summer um, project of their own with Elkins Growth. Yeah, nice. And if somebody wanted to come and visit your website, purchase any of these items, where do they go? To learn more about Poe Run Craft and Provisions, you would go to our website. That's porun.org. And from there, you can find us on Facebook, and Instagram and YouTube. You'll find our shopping <laughs> on our website. You can find all kinds of things about our bloom calendar, our legacy garden, Elkins Grows, and our construction project. Wow. Awesome. Thank you for that. That's, uh, that's come a long way since Margaret the Condo Gardener <laughs> article that I wrote 25 years ago in Phoenix. Sure has. Who knew where I was going to go? <laughs> and me too, for that matter. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. First and foremost, failures are lessons learned. So I remind myself of that. And because of the plentiful opportunity to, opportunities to fail, <laughs> I'd be beating myself up a lot uh, over my failures if I thought of them as hardcore failures. But I, I've been learning a lot of lessons when it comes to raising sheep. And every year, you learn more and more 
I mentioned the parasitic load. Parasites are really hard on sheep, especially lambs and ewes who are, are feeding their lambs. And I had, and summer is the season that tries to kill your sheep. So I lost a ewe one year and I almost lost a lamb. And it was really heartbreaking because I came from a career where I had mastered anything. And I, became, I was so resilient, right? I could forecast what was coming my way. I knew what was gonna, how the chips were gonna fall with the work, right? But here I am on a mountainside with sheep without my mother's mentorship. And I'm learning about parasites. And my sheep, her name was Apple. And she died mm -hmm. rapidly because when a sheep gets sick, they look fine until they're dead. It's like that. Chickens are the same way. Yeah. And I do an awful lot of dusting yourself off, literally and metaphorically around here. And thinking that was a lesson learned. <laughs> I am going to do some more research in that area, or I'm going to reach out to more people, or I'm going to really tap into that network, or I'm going to talk to the extension agent because man, it really hurts to fail and it hurts to fail your animals. Um, and so I feel every year I've been raising sheep on my own now for four years and each year I get a little smarter but that doesn't mean there are no more lessons to learn. <laughs> I'm going to learn them a different way. And I'm dealing with parasites again this spring because it's spring and this is what happens. You said something very interesting that uh, I discovered when I got here. You said our extension agent. Mm -hmm. And when Phoenix, I lived in the middle of the city, I really didn't have a need for an extension agent, especially since I'd been growing for 40 years in phoenix but i arrived here and my mentor scott suggested i reach out to my extension agent and i did and she has been a joy to work with and a wealth of knowledge yeah i have found our extension agents are very well educated and trained and generous with their time whether i yes. go see or they come here and they are, especially in a rural area, and a very important asset. A vet bill can be really expensive. The extension service is free. If we don't take advantage of that, then we're saying to the state, this isn't important to us. And the last thing we need is the state to take away services. And these are really valuable services. Yeah, I'm about ready to get my soil tested through the extension office. Yeah. So. Soil testing, our, our agent has come out and helped me determine what to do forage-wise in terms of um, plant seeding for our animals forage and how mm. to maintain plants and what to do with invasive species and how to balance the natural landscape and this kind of cultivated landscape, whether it's for the sheep pasture or for our garden. Wow, how cool is that? <laughs> and what do you consider your biggest success? <laughs> I think I consider our biggest success is staying here, doing it. <laughs> I um, can get that. I can get that for sure. I, I never, ever have wavered. Neither one of us have wavered on this decision. There have been many things that have validated our decision to take the leap and leave our working professional careers and move to a mountainside in West Virginia. Whether <laughs> it's foraging for medicinals to treat an eye infection that I had, or just being able to call upon our neighbors to come and help or to be able to bring food to our neighbors. This is the hardest work I've done ever physically and emotionally and mentally. <laughs> and it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And I, I like to joke with people that our land and our animals need to be beautiful for when they're bad. It's hard to be mad at them. <laughs> and right. it's true. This place is so beautiful and so immersive and environment. And at the end of every day, I'm exhausted and often very dirty. 
And I'm also incredibly grateful at, at the opportunity to be able to do this. We've cut our expenses a lot, but we've spent a fair amount of money trying to put in some infrastructure we need, water, for example, and yeah. building a new building that's going to earn us some income through Airbnb. And we've had some knocks and hardships when it comes to decisions we've made on products we thought we would do or things we thought we would grow, that sort of thing. But I think the biggest success probably is told to me every day, I think by mother nature. I know that sounds cheesy, but every day to be able to wake up and to make my own schedule and to literally watch stuff grow and figure out how to live in this immersive environment. It's both an incredible challenge, but really satisfying. Wow. And it, there's a lot of freedom in that. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we left LA. And that's the reason David told me he was leaving <laughs> LA is that he wanted the freedom to choose how he was going to spend his time. Yeah. And what's funny is our time is dictated by mother nature. Now our time is dictated by are the sheep doing okay? Or is it time to shear or is it time to harvest the garlic? We are on somebody else's schedule still, but it, it's a really natural schedule. That feels yeah. good. On mother nature's schedule. Yeah. And it's a simple schedule. Even though I should say it's a simple schedule, even though life and run, living at a place like this is not simple at all. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You take for granted when you turn the, the water on uh, for the faucet and get water out of it. <laughs> when, and what drives you? Honoring those who came before me and creating the space for those who come after me. I grew up in a large extended family of Italian immigrants people who worked really hard. My parents were very entrepreneurial and hardworking. And I didn't know that we were not well off because they worked really hard to feed us and grow food and provide for us and sew our clothes and take us to world-class museums. And that's what was set forth for me. And I hope that this is what David and I are setting forth for those who come after us, whether it's here on this property or in this community. I hope that we're leaving the kind of place that is good and healthy for young people who are making their way in the world. Beautiful. Thank you for that. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I am going to recommend a book called A New Earth. Awakening Your Life's Purpose. This is by Eckhart Tolle. And he's very straightforward and simple in his approach. And one of my favorite things he talks about is if you watch animals, a dog, for example, he's not insecure. He's not wondering, am I good enough? Did I do the right thing? Am I right enough? Am I pretty enough? He's just staring at you, wagging his tail, <laughs> his tongue hanging out. And you know what he's saying when he's wagging his tail? He's going, alive, alive, alive. <laughs> right. Because he gets to be alive. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves and our loved ones and our families and our community is to be resilient and to try new things on whatever scale, on whatever little patch of dirt we can, whether it's ours or someone else's, but to try and try again. Any concepts that we read about are doable even on the tiniest scale. I started as an urban gardener. I didn't have a garden. I asked somebody if I could garden in her backyard. And years later, here I am, trying to figure out what works here. 
and just continuing to try new things. And whether it's composting on a small scale or composting on a large scale that is overwhelming me, <laughs> but is creating so much soil that I can replenish the soil in my entire 2000 square foot garden. That's amazing. And so I encourage everyone to try their piece. What is their piece of this puzzle of self-sustaining life? And what is your piece of the puzzle in resiliency and building community vitality and being a good person? Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Margaret. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh. And so just a little bit more backstory. You mentioned your garden that you borrowed from a neighbor. Uh, I actually wrote an article about that about 15 years ago on our blog, and I recorded it for episode 619 of the Urban Farm podcast. So if you want to hear Margaret's story about, I call it Margaret the Condo Gardener. It's a it's an extraordinary story. And that had to have been what in 2004, 2005 timeframe. Yeah. 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 So if you're interested in hearing that story, go to listen episode 619 of the Urban Farm podcast. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, best place to start is our website. Our website takes you everywhere to Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Airbnb, takes you to some of the products we talked about, help feed our sheep their hay for the winter. <laughs> nice. And that website is poverun.org. P as in pumpkin, O, E as in eggplant, run.org. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I just, it was a delight catching up and having you on the show. Thank you. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Poe Run. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right. Absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.